Welcome back to Journal Spotting. Have you been trying to keep up with the medical literature? Have you been busy fielding questions from your mates along the lines of, is your life really like that guy from This Is Going To Hurt? The answer, sometimes. Well, your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles. We've scoured the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to another flipping awesome literature roundup. I hope you have all remained well and that all of you have been boring the perky ears of your junior members of your team or students or crazy aunt Jane on the pros and cons of anticoagulation to reduce the risk of PE, when to expect benefits from bisphosphonates, how we should never do exercise ever again because we might get AF. Not really, but maybe. How metazapine isn't the answer for agitation and dementia, and how patients only walk 36 steps a day when they have hip surgery. Uh, hi, Barney. Uh, I think those are both the bedtime stories that you tell your three-year-old, but also a very succinct <laughs> summary of our last roundup. If you missed it, go back and have a listen later. We had the MDT podcast team on the show, and we covered loads of great stuff, which could really change your practice. I do wonder why my three-year-old sleeps so well. <laughs> <laughs> We all sleep very well, Bonnie. <laughs> and if you're looking for some clinical pearls to whip out at the next post-ache ward round, well, your ears are in the right place, as there's more evidence in this episode than a report written by Sue Gray. And we've got a crack team of journal spotters on hand. Guys, do you want to introduce yourselves and tell us uh, what you'll be covering today? Thanks, John. Yes, really excited to be here. I'm Dr. Katia Florman, and I'm going to be updating you on the burden of antimicrobial-resistant infections and whether eosinophils can predict a negative outcome from inhaled corticosteroids in patients with COPD. Hi, great to be here too. I'm Dr. LJ Smith. I'll be looking at whether more sleep helps you lose weight and trying to get my head around bidirectional Mendelian randomization to explore the link between lung function and cardiovascular disease. Brilliant. As you may have guessed, I am Dr. Barnaby Hirons, and I'm going to look at ways to reduce pointless waking up patients at night to check their vital signs. And I'm Dr. Jonathan Hudson, and I'm going to explore COVID vaccines and myocarditis. And then I'm going to look at why diabetic cardiovascular risk prediction is so difficult. So even if you find this episode only slightly useful and only mildly entertaining, you should probably hit subscribe and check out the full back catalogue of shows on journalspotting.com. Keep in touch via our social media channels, or as I heard referred to at a gig that I was definitely too old to be in attendance at, hit up them socials. Now let's crack on with the evidence. Oh <laughs> John, I've got to ask, what gig was it? Ariana Grande, Ariana, what's her name? Ariana Grande. Oh my gosh, that that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even. I yeah, it was just some local gig uh, with a with a DJ that was playing in between the acts called DJ Carnage. Who oh, was, DJ uh, Carnage, great! Oh so shout out DJ Carnage. Hit up them socials. <laughs> Can I ask you a question, John? Like when you started to go bald, did you find going to gigs really hard when you would stand at the back and just look at all these people with lovely hair in front of you? <laughs> but I could, yeah, we could do a whole separate podcast episode on that. Um, <laughs> okay, fine. We'll, we'll leave that for another day. Okay. John, um, I think you're actually going to start us off. So what have you got for us? Okay. So journal spotting team, I have been listening to the Joe Rogan podcast. I think you guys might have heard of it. And I basically think the way for us to hit the big time is to say something controversial about COVID vaccines. That's a brilliant, that's an amazing idea. And I've had the same idea myself. Um, so uh, LJ's face. <laughs> you think, oh God, we need to make sure everyone knows this is a joke. <laughs> 
Um, John, what's been going on? Have you been hanging out with some Canadian truckers or something? Yeah, well, I'll save the interview with Novak Djokovic on vaccines for another day. And I'm going to stick to this study in nature medicine. So I hear a lot in the hospital and socially about the risks of myocarditis after COVID vaccination. It's an issue that I've kind of been aware of, but not really thought about that much. And also, I haven't really seen any cases in hospital. Um, Have you guys seen any COVID vaccination induced myocarditis? No, uh, it's something we've discussed in our COVID MDM, and we've not found a convincing case yet, which is really reassuring for the safety of the vaccines. Um, But the last time I looked at the evidence was a few months ago. So I'm glad you brought this study to keep us up to date. Yeah. um, So basically, this study is a research group in Oxford that wants to know, did people who were given one or two doses of any of the three COVID vaccines develop one of myocarditis, pericarditis, or a cardiac arrhythmia in the 28 days following the jab. They also looked at the rates of these outcomes 28 days after a positive SARS-CoV-2 infection test. To do this, they did a massive data linkage study and a technique for checking vaccine side effects called self-controlled case series. They took data from the National Immunization Database and they linked it to national UK data for mortality, hospital admissions, and COVID-19 infections. So this is one of these like massive studies that we've seen during COVID, and it's given a cohort of 38 million adults in the study, which is a lot of people getting vaccinated. I mean, this is big numbers. So like with many of these huge data studies, they performed some kind of clever statistical wizardry that I didn't really understand to come up with what they described as incident risk ratios for the outcomes. Now, their key findings were the following. First, when they calculated absolute events after a SARS-CoV-2 infection, there is an increased risk of myocarditis that comes out in an extra 40 events per 1 million patients. Second, regarding the vaccines, they confirmed what we kind of already suspected, that there's an increased risk of myocarditis. It's in the first seven days after any COVID vaccine. For the first dose of the AZ and Pfizer vaccine, your risk of myocarditis was increased. And the first and second doses of the Moderna vaccine also gave you an increased risk of myocarditis. It's worth saying at this point that for the other two outcomes, uh, cardiac arrhythmia and pericarditis, there was absolutely no increased risk uh, after vaccination. But obviously, there was actually increased risk after COVID infection. They estimated an extra two, one, and six myocarditis cases per million people vaccinated for the AZ, Pfizer, and Moderna first doses, and an extra 10 cases per million after the second dose of the Moderna. So putting those numbers into perspective, these are risks per million patients, and the risks of myocarditis with COVID is fourfold higher than the Moderna vaccine, which is basically the biggest culprit here. Thirdly, which I think is interesting and worth sort of highlighting, they performed a subgroup analysis in those under 40. And this did show that there was an increased risk of events after the second dose of the Moderna vaccine to 15 per million patients. And in this subgroup, this compares actually to 10 extra cases of myocarditis following a positive COVID test per million patients. So actually, there does appear to be a slightly increased risk with the Moderna vaccine second dose of myocarditis. However, there are definitely limitations to this study. And, you know, it's a data linkage study. And there's a lot of kind of inferences made here. But but those are the rough numbers. Okay, thanks. So that's a quite a lot of numbers there. Um, and risks, but it's worth emphasising that all of those increased risks are absolutely tiny, aren't they? I mean, you're talking events per million, we're really talking really rare stuff, you know, getting struck by lightning type territory, really, aren't we? Just to have a little add in there, LJ, did you know that it's the risk of getting struck by lightning in your lifetime is somewhere in the region of one in 15,000. Oh, wow. So actually, that's a much more likely occurrence than 
vaccine-induced myocarditis. <laughs> in your lifetime, you're much more likely to get struck by lightning. But then in, in a year, it's about, I think it's, uh, it's over one in a million in a year. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. yeah, well, definitely. That's the first thing I think, I hope this paper gets across. I think it's actually really useful study as it kind of quantifies the risk of this incredibly rare adverse event and, and really emphasizes the rarity of it. And it's worth saying the risk, as they found in the study, was confined to the, the first seven days post-vaccination. And, and obviously the risks are higher, as I said, in under 40s, and specifically after second doses of mRNA vaccines and Moderna vaccine being the, the most likely culprit. The crucial point for me, as you said, is that the risk is small and it pales in comparison to the substantial increased risk that SARS-CoV-2 infection gives you of hospitalization or death from myocarditis, but also pericarditis, cardiac arrhythmia, and God, you know, we could go on and name all of the complications. Brilliant. That's actually really helpful thinking about how we risk assess people coming with possible symptoms coming on the take, because that seven day window is, is really useful. Okay, well, hopefully, John, some of those Canadian truckers who we know are avid journal spotting listeners will now feel reassured. And obviously, if Novak Djokovic needs a bit more info, I'm sure you'd be available for a chat. Definitely. Anyway, thanks. Thanks a lot for clarifying that. Really helpful. Slip into my DMs, Novak. <laughs> said that oh God, me. you oh really God. need to stop trying to be down with the kids. Oh dear. Brilliant, John. Thanks. That's really interesting. I think um, a lot of people are worried, especially in, say, children. That's when it, that's when they start to worry about the myocarditis, isn't it? In these very young patients, um, you know, is the risk high enough from the vaccine, you know, compared to the risk of actually getting ill from infection? But actually, as you say, it's still incredibly rare, and so probably isn't something we should be worried about. Uh, Katia, I think uh, you're going to continue along the infectious diseases theme. Is that right? Yes, I am. I've got a quite sobering article um, up for you guys next. Just when you thought that between COVID and the climate crisis, we, the world and healthcare professionals had enough on their plates, along comes the looming threat of worsening antimicrobial resistance. And you may just feel like throwing in the towel now. It's predicted that Antimicrobial resistance, which they call AMR, will cause up to 10 million deaths a year globally by 2050, which is quite a hard number to get our heads around. This paper was a systematic analysis published in The Lancet, which looked at the global burden of bacterial antimicrobial resistance in 2019. They couldn't get more recent data um, because of the COVID pandemic. And they think this is the most comprehensive analysis to date, looking at 204 countries and territories 23 different bacteria and 88 bacteria drug combinations. So they gathered data from a huge number of sources and the statistical modeling process is pretty mind boggling. So I won't try and explain it on this podcast, but essentially there were 10 different estimation steps that they used to get to their final numbers. The unique thing that they did was that they imagined two different scenarios to help estimate how many deaths were actually caused by resistance. So the first scenario was that in, let's say the patient, instead of having a drug-resistant infection, actually had a drug-sensitive infection. So the excess deaths are caused by the presence of that resistance. And that's what they call deaths attributable to antimicrobial resistance. The second scenario was that instead of a drug-resistant infection, the patient had no infection at all. And then they calculated those excess deaths as those that were associated with AMR. Okay, that's, yeah, that sounds quite clear and, and quite an interesting way to, to assess this. Uh, what did they actually end up finding? Well, the headline figure is that they estimate 4.95 million deaths in 2019 were associated with bacterial AMR and 1.27 million deaths were directly attributable to bacterial AMR. So that's when you got the resistant infection instead of the susceptible infection. 
So the highest burden of this was in Western Sub-Saharan Africa and the lowest was in Australasia. And overall, just over three quarters of all deaths were from one of three infectious syndromes. So low respiratory tract infections, intra-abdominal infections or bloodstream infection. So breaking it down into the pathogens, there were six individual pathogens that were each responsible for over a quarter million deaths. So any guesses? Can anyone imagine the lineup of all the baddest bacteria in town, if you had to name a few? I suppose start with um, MRSA, I suppose, or, you know, Staph aureus, um, sort of that being resistant, and E. coli would be the top ones that I'm, I would be thinking of. Yeah, I was going to say E. coli. Pseudomonas. Very good. Very good, guys. Okay. We, 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 we're not totally ignorant of the problem on this podcast. Um, yeah, so those six were E. coli, Staph aureus, Klebsiella pneumoniae, Streptococcus pneumoniae, Pseudomonas, and Acetonobacter baumani. So we've all heard of those infections and are aware that they can be very resistant. They, they looked at the specific drug pathogen combinations. As I said, Barney, something like MRFA would, would count as, as that. And they found that actually, even though in England we've, our MRSA rates have reduced massively, globally this was still responsible for over 100,000 deaths in 2019 and the highest rates were in North Africa and the Middle East. They identified six other bacteria drug combinations which caused a large number of deaths, and those included things like MDRTB and three different carbapenem-resistant organisms. Wow, so three different carbapenem-resistant organisms. That sounds pretty scary. Yeah, exactly. I think it's hard to know where to go after a carbapenem. It does remind me of speaking to a microbiologist in my hospital recently saying she does. they are getting calls now with drugs, uh, with, with patients with infections that they just don't have any options to give them. Gosh. And uh, just thinking about MRSA, which you mentioned there earlier, uh, the stats that you just said, does that suggest that the infection prevention and control policies that we've employed here in the UK actually have worked quite well? Yes. And um, they suggest at the end of the paper that actually infection prevention control still remains one of the top five steps we should be taking towards tackling this problem. Others are increasing vaccinations as currently the only pathogen of concern with the vaccine is streptococcus pneumoniae. They think we need to reduce the amount of antibiotics used in farming and, of course, antibiotic stewardship in healthcare and investing in new um, drugs. They highlight, though, that stewardship is a really difficult problem in low and middle income countries. Um, and that's where the highest burden of this problem is. And that's due to the lack of infrastructure. So if you don't have a microbiology lab, it's hard to give your clinicians the right information that they need to actually narrow the spectrum of the antibiotic they're prescribing. There's quite a lot of information and there's quite a long paper, but my take home point for the general medic is we need to start taking antimicrobial resistance seriously. It already is and is going to be a huge part of our clinical practice. So we should all probably stop, start learning a little bit more microbiology. I'm just not sure that the list of gram negatives versus gram positives is going to cut it anymore. Now, I really can't let this go without saying that, you know, you did mention there that one of the reasons we've got such a problem with antimicrobial resistance is the huge amounts of antibiotics used in farming and factory farming are a massive contributor to this. So if people are more interested in that, it'd be great for them to listen back to our episode with Dr. Shireen Kassam, where we do touch on this and other reasons why our plant-based diet has so many benefits. Yeah, very scary. Thank you so much, Cassie. That was really good. Uh, so LJ, I think you're up next and you're going to tell us about the latest weight loss fad, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, it's February, so lots of our listeners might be falling off the bandwagon of their New Year's resolutions by now. One of the most common New Year's resolutions is to lose weight, but it's not easy, especially for people who are living with obesity. 
So I was really interested to find this study in JAMA Internal Medicine, which asked whether sleeping more could be the answer. Gosh, I think as diets go, this one sounds a lot more appealing than extreme calorie restriction or existing on protein shakes, as I see a lot of people (laughs) carrying around their fuel at work. Oh, God, I know. It sounds too good to be true, right? I mean, who doesn't love sleep? But it's based on a really interesting observation that the obesity epidemic has coincided with a pattern of sleeping less over the last few decades. And there's already strong evidence that sleeping less than seven hours a night regularly is associated with obesity. There's also evidence from short-term lab studies that sleep restriction in healthy individuals is associated with an increased mean energy intake of about 250 to 350 calories a day with little change in energy expenditure. Gosh, that sounds very familiar. But those lab studies done on medical trainees on night shifts because I know that the donuts donuts I reach for at 3am really do increase my energy intake by quite a lot. And then obviously you never make it to the gym on a zero day. So... Sounds like a very familiar story. (laughs) Yeah, it could be. Um, No medical trainees were harmed in the making of this research, as far as I know. Um, (laughs) But sleep is is associated with obesity. But um, until now, no one knew whether extending sleep duration would be an effective strategy for preventing or reversing obesity. So this was a single centre RCT, which took adults aged 21 to 40, who had a BMI of 25 to 30, and usually slept less than six and a half hours a night. Everyone had two weeks sleeping as they normally did, and sleep was monitored using actigraphy, and then they were randomised to sleep extension or control groups. Those in the sleep extension group received sleep hygiene counselling through a structured interview, and from the supplementary data that I had a look at, this counselling seems to have been pretty comprehensive. It lasted a full hour. That's a long time to talk about sleep. And participants were given individualised bedtime and wake-up time schedules to follow at home for the next two weeks, and they were aiming to extend bedtime duration to eight and a half hours. Okay, so they used actigraphy. Is that just wearing a Fitbit? Um, Do you think that's a reliable way of measuring sleep duration? Um, Good question. Of course, other brands of activity tracker are available. Uh, Yes, actigraphy is a well-validated way of measuring sleep time. It's one of the channels on a multi-channel polysomnography, but as a single measure, it's got actually pretty good sensitivity and accuracy. Um, The researchers also measured some other stuff, uh, energy intake, expenditure, body weight and composition. And this involved multiple methods, none of which sounded super fun. Um, Sleeping under some plastic tents and measuring expired air, drinking labelled water and collecting the urine. They're all really very rigorous and designed to reduce bias. Um, They measured or estimated basal metabolic rate, thermic effects of meals, fat and non-fat mass over time and energy expenditure for each participant. They ended up with 40 in each group in the intervention and control groups. And those in the sleep extension group had a significant increase from baseline in mean sleep duration by actigraphy compared with those in the control group. And this was a mean of 1.2 hours. So really importantly, their intervention did work. They did extend sleep duration. And energy intake was statistically significantly decreased in the sleep extension group, um, about 270 calories a day lower. Even in this short period of just two weeks after randomization, the people in the sleep extension group had a reduction in weight compared to those in the control group. Now, it was only about 0.87 kilograms, um, but this was statistically significant. Um, And the sleep extension group saw other benefits, and they included things like daytime energy was improved and they had better mood. Mm, That's interesting. Actually, 270 calories less a day 
is quite a lot. Having started tracking um, exercise, the calories you burn by cycling nine miles, I think is less than that. It's always so disappointing when you look at that, isn't it? Um, But that doesn't sound like that much weight loss, 0.87 kilos. So do you think we can translate these findings into practice? It's quite an investment of resources for the individualized one hour sleep counseling. Yeah, um, the researchers extrapolate that a decrease in energy intake of about 270 calories a day would predict approximately 12 kilogram weight loss over three years if the effects were sustained. But they admit that they have no data on whether their healthy sleep habits would be maintained in the longer term or whether the same rate of weight loss would continue. And this wasn't a huge study and there were a lot of exclusions. So I would expect that the effects might be weaker in the real world. Okay, so were there any hints as to which of the sleep interventions were the most impactful? That's a great question, Katya. Um, any ideas yourself? What advice do you give people about sleep? Well, I I read this the book Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Um, oh, that's a green about one. About a year ago. And I think it actually really changed my life. But <laughs> the main things I remembered from it are um, only, well, he doesn't really like any coffee, but I think if you have to have coffee, you should have just one and it should be before midday. Um, you shouldn't really look at blue light, so the light that comes from screens, and especially not before bed, as that inhibits uh, melatonin release. And he thinks alcohol basically prevents good sleep. So if you really have to have a drink, you should have it in the morning. I think, <laughs> I think that's what. It that's great advice. <laughs> have an Irish coffee in the morning, and you're you're set. Yeah, yeah. And he actually okay, doesn't well, make any plans after 6pm. Because <laughs> he's pissed. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, I'm certainly not going to be recommending day drinking or definitely not morning <laughs> drinking, but those others are all definitely evidence-based. Um, in this study, reducing screen time pre-sleep seemed to be the most impactful. So I think that's the key sleep hygiene advice to give if you're short on time in clinic. Um, and if I was in charge, phones and TVs would be banned from bedrooms. They are a menace. I think overall this study despite its limitations, really highlights the importance of improving adequate sleep duration as a public health target for lots of really good reasons, but particularly shown by this study for obesity prevention. So I guess in answer to your previous question, your lions are absolutely medically prescribed. I think it's brilliant. Actually, it's a really interesting study. I think there's a couple of kind of, I suppose, questions which I would have about, I mean, does sleeping more just mean you're eating less? Does it actually just mean that you just... um, you're having one hour more sleep, so you have one hour less where you can be eating. Or is it related to a longer period of fasting? And there's lots of sort of evidence of, you know, and podcasters and lifestyle people who are talking about intermittent fasting. And even an hour more of fasting has um, quite wide ranging beneficial effects. So, you know, I guess the jury's out, we won't know, but it's interesting to think um, of why that extra hour caused weight loss. I think it's yeah, very fast, fascinating. There's some really good questions. Yeah, obviously, this study can't answer those questions. But I I think you're right. Um, I think what we're seeing is there's a really strong link with lots of health outcomes with sleep, good quality sleep and an adequate duration of sleep. So Mm. lots of reasons to to look into this more in terms of mechanistic. Mm. um, I I think it's, um, well, I shouldn't quote a popular science book again, but in the book, he says, it's because um, lack of sleep basically inhibits your satiety hormone. Yeah, I think there's actually quite a lot of data on um, circadian rhythms uh, of, of a number of different hormones and also other um, neurotransmitters and things like that. So so circadian rhythms um, is a really fascinating topic in, in itself. That's brilliant. Thanks. Thanks, Ajay. I, I, I'm going to 
take us on to a, a you know, talk about sleep um, in, a, in a different cohort, actually, in hospital patients. And I think it leads on quite nicely. So I'll, I'll nip in there. Um, and as all good Barney articles start, I like to start with a little anecdote. So <laughs> a, a few years ago, I mean, this was a gosh, many years ago, actually, I was chatting to my friend Duncan about his choice to apply to GP training over something like hospital medicine. So I was going to go into medicine and he was going to go to GP. And he was quite clear. He said, Barney, I cannot wait to stop wandering around the cold hospitals late at night, crossing off scrappy lists and waking up old patients to ask if they know where they are and when the war started. <laughs> and um, I just, it really rang true. And I was like, oh gosh, what am I going to do going into medicine? But still, I did anyway. Um, does that ring true for you guys? Can you, you know, especially in your training days, LJ? Yeah, I mean, they're pretty recent, you know, they're not too long ago. I'm not that old yet. But I've got to say that um, one thing I don't miss about being a consultant is is those rounds where, yeah, you're waking people up and it just seems like, why? Why am I? You didn't have to wake that patient up to, to find out if they're in pain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hello, hello. Are you in pain? Well, I am now because I'm awake. Oh, great. Oh, let's give you some painkillers anyway. Look, clearly this is all something which we've all experienced. And that's why this um, this article, which was effectiveness of an analytics-based intervention for reducing sleep interruption in hospitalized patients, struck a chord. So there's loads of known associations between things like delirium and noise at, high, noise at night in hospitals, and generally just the importance of sleep uh, for health and well-being, as Eldra has already touched on. The authors of this study therefore developed a computer algorithm which tracked the patient's course and vital signs and gave a prediction of deterioration in vital signs overnight. Now, it's not the first time something like this has been used. Decades ago, they used to use this in ICU and apparently used to have like a little death icon which came up when a patient was really unwell and was probably going to die. Um, so, you know, this is, this is like an age-old thing which people have been using, but they're using it in this setting. They used a threshold of 90% chance of normal vital signs um, to indicate whether they were gonna, should be woken up or not. Okay, so to turn that on its head, if they had a 10% chance of abnormal vital signs... Uh, would they get usual vital signs done overnight? Yeah, absolutely right. And for this study in, in this hospital, it was um, every four hours they were getting checked, um, which is quite standard. Um, although overnight, sometimes that does, we do do it a little bit longer in the UK, leave it a little bit longer. So after they made this program, they set up an RCT comparing intervention and control. They looked for primary outcome of rate of delirium with secondary outcomes, including number of nighttime awakenings and sleep opportunity. In 1,930 encounters, they unfortunately found no decrease in the rate of delirium. However, more importantly, there were no adverse outcomes included, no increased arrests or ICU calls or anything like that. There was a significant reduction in nighttime vital, che- vital signs checking and increased sleep opportunity for patients. Okay, so this is a negative outcome for the trial, but actually all the, all the intervention has to show is that it doesn't actually cause harm, right? as you pointed out. Absolutely. So it's a negative trial overall from its primary outcome. But um, what I take from this is that these sorts of algorithms seem to work. Okay. And as a true believer that sleep is really important for both the physical and the mental recovery of our patients, I think we should be incorporating these sorts of practices more often, rather than just checking routine vital signs of poor, you know, granny, Deirdre who you know who needs her sleep otherwise she's going to get more confused and she's not going to be able to get up and mobilize the next day or they're you know going to sleep during the day and the next day I can imagine Bonnie when you return from your time out in the 
research wilderness standing at the head of the bed of the septic patient at 3 a.m. Don't check her blood pressure. Just let her sleep it off. She'll be fine. <laughs> just, she'll be fine in the morning. I need to go back to bed. Um, yeah, exactly. If you if you keep wake if you keep waking her up, she's gonna put on weights. That's what's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, look, there's, there's loads of caveats, of course. And, you know, we can't just stop doing vital signs overnight on, on these patients because, you know, we need to basically make an informed choice of these well patients who, you know, and decide not to interrupt their sleep as much as possible. And we should all be making those sorts of efforts, I think, with our patients. Oh, great. Yeah, that's a really nice study and highlights such a such a sort of key issue for what we do in the hospital. Um, I'm going to take us away from news scores and onto cardiovascular risk scores. So uh, journal spotting pub quiz round number one. Uh, first question, how many cardiovascular risk scores exist in the world? 27. I'd say 10. I mean, I can only think of like four, but I think there must be loads because people love a risk prediction model. So I'm going to go 30. Okay. Uh, so LJ, you were closest. However, you were off by one zero. It's 300. It's actually oh, wow. 363. <gasps> Just for cardiovascular risk. Yeah. Oh. So in the UK, if you want to assess an adult's cardiovascular risk, you ask a bunch of questions and then plug the answers into the Q-Risk 3 score and voila, a patient's 10-year risk of MI or stroke is presented to you. So we place a lot of faith in these scores and they dictate quite a lot of our practice and they churn out predictions about the future of our patients and you can't help but feel a little bit sceptical about them sometimes. And this study in Diabetologica by Zioppa et al. confirmed some of my suspicions. Sorry for mispronunciation. That's a, I wouldn't add that. Is that a, a real journal, Diabetologica? Yeah. I know it does. Should oh, I, I say it? Diabetologica. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's so good. <laughs> the Did you read it in Spanish or Italian or whatever it was? Uh, I read it in English, but I don't know. Oh, if, uh, yeah. <laughs> Please carry on. <laughs> The authors wanted to know if cardiovascular risk prediction tools actually worked in patients with type 2 diabetes. Why is this important? Well, many of these tools are utilized for type 2 diabetics, obviously as type 2 diabetes are quite a big risk for cardiovascular disease. And weirdly, a lot of these risk scores haven't actually been validated in type 2 diabetics. Now, there are some risk scores that are specific for type 2 diabetics, um, but they're, they're basically just not that valid or haven't been externally validated okay so how do they do the study then john i mean I have, a, I have a vision of these just a bunch of cardiologists all arguing about these 300 different scoring systems and each one just saying which one they prefer based on the evidence they read last night i mean that's every cardiology journal club ever yeah uh, yeah exactly <laughs> so i think this is really interesting so these are researchers they're actually based at ucl i think and they took a representative sample of 170,000 type 2 diabetics without cardiovascular disease from an electronic health record in the UK. And they basically just followed them up to see who got cardiovascular disease of the 170,000. They then checked to see how well the tests worked on, that, on the cohort. To do this, they used something called the C-statistic, which basically is a measure of how well a test discriminates between someone that gets the disease, so in this case, cardiovascular disease, or someone that doesn't get the disease. So one, a uh, score of one, a C-statistic of one is perfect discrimination. And 0.5 is basically random chance. Uh, 0.7 to 0.8 is seen as sort of acceptable. And below 0.7, you need to chuck the crystal ball in the bin. That sounds actually really interesting. Okay, so um, how did they get on? Okay, so they, they didn't evaluate all 300 risk scores. That would be ridiculous. They, they used 22 scores. All the scores, uh, basically every single one that they looked at scored below 0.7, i.e. inadequate discrimination. The Q-Risk 3, 
which we uh, here in the UK use the most, got 0.66. Another worrying finding was that the scores specifically designed for patients with diabetes were not superior to those that had been derived from the general population. And the final point, which I think is worth reporting, is that the scores with more variables didn't actually do any better than those with fewer variables. So there were like some scores with like 20 things to plug in and some with six. And actually the ones with six are just as rubbish as the ones with 20. And also, which was quite funny, is that the older scores also don't aren't worse. So like newer scores that we've developed, you know, in the last couple of years aren't better than like the 1990 framing and risk kind of scores. That's really interesting, John. I think that's that's fascinating. And it makes you think about a whole host of our scoring systems and how useful they are. And uh, yeah, I would use this, you know, the, the phrase a bit worrying. And I noticed you've used that, I think it's maybe four or five times. Um, are you worried? Well, yeah, I may use my worried voice. A little bit, maybe. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I think there are two really important uh, points to make, which uh, hopefully are quite obvious from this paper. Firstly, the patient group, this patient group, i.e. type diabetics, needs better risk prediction scores as they clearly underperform and more research really needs to be done to develop better scores. And secondly, I think there's a wider issue that is highlighted, which is our ubiquitous use of risk prediction tools. And it's definitely worth emphasizing they should complement clinical practice and not replace it. And we probably need to be more aware of their limitations. I think it's interesting, like there are no, well, not no, but there are very few randomized control trials looking at the clinical impact of these risk prediction tools. So we don't know how well they work really in clinical practice. And you, you don't know whether they, um, the scores over or under predict the risk of cardiovascular disease. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think the study looked into that, basically. Okay. I think it was just a question of how well it was discriminating between two cases. But that, I think that would be a fascinating thing to um, to know and certainly would be very useful for clinical practice, yeah. And you also, the problem is that you're saying we should, you know, it should complement clinical practice, but I suppose the point is these patients don't have cardiovascular disease. So they don't have clinical signs, which we can go off, which is why why we're so, we use these scores so much, we rely on them so much. And it's really quite disappointing, isn't it? To find out how poorly they do. Mm. Well, thanks, John. That's great. That's, you know, just going to put a down on every guideline in the hospital <laughs> from now on. Um, but let's, so what we're going to do now is, listeners, we're going to move away from cardiology, which is John's. We're going to go to respiratory, which is my field, but... It's not me this time who's going to be doing respiratory um, articles. Katya, I think you've got an excellent study you want to share with us. Yeah, thanks, Barney. I know what you're thinking. Another respiratory paper on journal spotting. Um, We're going to have to rebrand soon. So this paper looks at um, inhaled corticosteroids and COPD. And I actually thought it really should be included because it might just be um, practice changing for some listeners, dare I say it. So over the last few years, the importance of blood eosinophils as a biomarker for identifying a more steroid-responsive phenotype of COPD has emerged. And the gold now recommends that blood eosinophils should be used to guide decisions around inhaled corticosteroid prescribing. This study by Ashdana Al in the European Respiratory Journal looked at whether in a real-world inhaled corticosteroid-naive general practice population eosinophil count influenced whether inhaled corticosteroids could predict outcome. Over a 10-year period, they collected data from GP and hospital records in the UK. They included patients who were over 40 or above, had a spirometry diagnosis of COPD, and were stepped up to a new inhaled treatment. And this could either contain an inhaled corticosteroid or it could not. Then they used the most recent eosinophil count recorded prior to the initiation of that inhaled treatment 
and stratified the 9,500 patients into those with high or low eosinophils. So high was over 150 cells per microliter and low was less than 150. They then compared the two groups, so the group that got inhaled steroids versus the group that didn't. And crucially, there was no significant difference in eosinophil level between each group um, at, the, um, at any point. Well, that's really interesting. And um, actually, what's interesting is a cut of 150 is, is, uh, is low, you know, um, and that's definitely way below um, coming up as abnormal on any blood tests, which I think is usually around 500. And actually, when we're thinking about asthma and COPD, we often use 300 or 400, depending on the hospital. So 150 is quite a low eosinophil count anyway, which is really interesting. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm sure you'll, you'll tell us what, what do they find? Yeah, so they actually found that the use of inhaled corticosteroids increased the risk of COPD exacerbations compared to those who were not prescribed inhaled corticosteroids, but that the effect size was much greater in those with lower eosinophil count. So with those that hazard ratio was 1.19, so a 19% increased risk compared to those with a high eosinophil count where the risk was only increased by 4%. Wow. Okay. That's really interesting. So you're saying that the steroid naive patients with low eosinophils um, who were started on ICS and inhaled corticosteroid had a 15% higher risk of future exacerbations compared to those with a, a count of uh, eosinophil count of 150 and above. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And interestingly, looking at their secondary out- outcomes, using inhaled corticosteroids in those with low eosinophils increase the risk of hospitalization from pneumonia by 26% compared to those with the non-steroid-based treatment. Okay, great. Mm, not so great for the people getting pneumonia, I suppose. But um, Katia, when are they getting these eosinophil counts from? Um, is it just when they get admitted as a one-off or is this some sort of average over the years? Um, how, are they, how are they getting that? Yeah, so they used the eosinophil count just before the one that they had closest to the initiation of treatment. Crucially, if the patients were admitted to hospital, they did not use that count because they thought it would be falsely elevated if they're admitted with an exacerbation. Um, But they then um, re-ran their analysis using average eosinophils over all the records that they had, and they actually found that the results were the same. So it doesn't really matter which eosinophil count you use, as long as it's not in an acute situation but they think that that any count either low or high is enough to predict outcome great okay and uh, recently there's been a lot of evidence about eosinophils and being steroid responsive if eosinophils are high so do you think there was some you know actually that is guiding our treatment more and more do you think there was some bias with um, in the study with you know with patients being who had a high eosinophils already being on steroids, et cetera, or anything like that? Yeah, they, they thought about that. And that's why, even though the paper came out this year, they only used data from 2005 to 2015 to try and mitigate the, the effect of the new guidelines and new research on prescribing tendencies. To, so to make sure that, you know, everyone with high eosinophils wasn't immediately prescribed corticosteroids. And so that would affect the analysis. So I thought this was pretty practice changing and would steer me away from initiating ICS inhaled corticosteroids and those with lower eosinophils, given the risk of exacerbations in pneumonia. But obviously, I'm on a podcast with two respiratory physicians, and I'm wondering what our respiratory consultant, LJ, thinks of this paper. So I think this is a brilliant paper, and it's great that you've brought it to our attention. Um, it highlights some really important things for our listeners, I think. Obviously, COPD is absolutely fascinating and deserves <laughs> far more attention and research. And also, eosinophils brilliant. are clearly the absolute best immune cell. 
<laughs> yeah, that's why, I, that's why I put it on the podcast. Sure. <laughs> There's no dispute there. Um, but CAPD is an imprecise diagnostic label. I think we all know that. And it includes a really wide diversity of illness experiences. But increasingly, we're able to phenotype our patients and identify what, what's known as treatable traits. And eosinophil count is one of the most useful biomarkers, which we can target as a treatable trait and personalise treatment. So absolutely, I would not recommend an inhaled corticosteroid in patients with a low eosinophil count and a low exacerbation rate to avoid the harms that you've mentioned. And this approach is recommended, as you've said, in the latest NICE and GOLD guidelines. But I do think this paper adds to our knowledge because firstly, it's real world data. It's a really great use of routinely collected data and data linkage. Um, and I've not seen an increase in exacerbation rate before reported in previous studies that have looked at eosinophil counts um, for people who have been given inhaled corticosteroids. The pneumonia risk is talked about and, and we know well in respiratory, but the increased risk of exacerbations is something that's new to me. So Certainly, I think this could well be practice changing for a lot of people. And I would recommend in primary care that people do have a look at eosinophil count. It's something that will be done on a full blood count. So pretty much every patient's had a count. Um, and I'd really think twice about prescribing an ICS and CAPD. Um, a labalama is a better option for many patients. And of course, a dry powder inhaler where possible just to keep that environmental impact low. <laughs> this is great thank you it's a brilliant summary actually and um yeah so lj seeing as you're on a on a roll do you want to tell us about your next article yeah i'd love to thanks okay so my second study is from thorax and it's used data from the uk biobank a large prospective cohort study of more than five hundred thousand participants and it was looking at exploring the link between lung function and cardiovascular disease so poorer lung function is associated with cardiovascular disease in previous studies, but this could be confounding by things like physical activity and smoking. So in this study, they used Mendelian randomization to try and get around this. And I think you've discussed Mendelian randomization before. Can you remember what it is? Oh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting a test on this, LJ. Uh, After you, John. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Basically, it's a genetic technique. Oh, it's an experimental technique that use, exploits random genetic traits that dictate certain risk factors and therefore avoids confounding. That, that's pretty good, actually. That's a good summary. Um, I had to read the method section several times. But um, essentially, because Mendelian randomization uses, as you said, genetic variants, often single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs, um, that are related to exposures that are randomly allocated during conception, it's potentially less vulnerable to residual confounding than other types of observational studies might be. Um, I actually found a good explainer article in the BMJ on Mendelian randomization with a really nice critical appraisal checklist. So we'll include this in the show notes because it was a great help. Um, okay, so the, the aim of this study was to determine the causal effect of FEV1 and FEC on a wide range of cardiovascular diseases. They included more genetic instruments and more cardiovascular outcomes and risk factors than previous studies. And they also explored the association in the other direction. So whether genetic predisposition to cardiovascular diseases might cause variation in lung function. A lot of the paper is a description of the methods, which, uh, such as um, which libraries they used to identify their SNPs from genome-wide association studies, how they built their statistical models, which are pretty complex, and measures used to prevent confounding, which is really important in this types of study, um, and also some sensitivity analysis. And it was pretty rigorous, and I couldn't spot any major flaws using that BMJ checklist. 
Sounds like you had a really fun weekend, LJ. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what did they find in the study? <laughs> okay, so higher FEV1 was associated with lower risk of coronary artery disease, overall stroke and some subtypes of stroke and type 2 diabetes, but increased risk of AF and no association with heart failure. FEC showed similar relations with these outcomes. Um, and in terms of the association with cardiovascular risk factors, higher FEV1 was mainly associated with lower systolic blood pressure and triglycerides. And FEC was again similar, but was also associated with lower LDL cholesterol, glucose and insulin. Just for the uh, non-respiratory on the podcast, uh, and just pretending to be a dumb cardiologist, uh, higher FEV1 is bad, right? Higher FEV1 is good. You it's want good. as much <laughs> lung function as possible. <laughs> what a joke. That's why I was getting really confused. Yeah. I was like, okay, yeah. fine. Yeah. So high FEV1 is good because it's four six. High FEV1 yeah. is good. Four six for volume in one you're second. You're getting more yeah. out. You want that you're be... getting more out in a second. Yeah, mm, exactly that. You've got more power behind you. Okay. So then the results of the analysis in the other direction showed that predisposition to coronary artery disease, stroke, atrial fibrillation, and heart failure was not associated with FEV1 or FEC. So this provides evidence against possible reverse causation. Okay. Uh, so I think this is suggesting that better lung function is protective of the heart, right? If I've if I've got that correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, as with all observational studies, we've got to be a little bit cautious about claiming causality, but this methodology is the best we have. And these results are very suggestive. There's even a hint to the mechanisms through the association with some of the risk factors like blood pressure and diabetes. Um, the other thing to say is that some of their effects were attenuated or disappeared when they adjusted for height. So that's really important because that's pretty relevant um, to things like FEV1. Um, and so the association of AF dropped out, but those headline outcomes of the role of lung function on cardiovascular health were still there. And I think alongside other studies, there's sufficient consistency of association between poor lung function and increased cardiovascular risk to accept the findings. So my take home from this is that breathless patients of an unknown cause definitely should be seen in a respiratory clinic, right? Uh, uh-oh. <laughs> I can see my referrals going up. No, but what you're saying is that we should be really thinking a lot more about lung function and, and it can be part of maybe a cardiovascular risk assessment in practice. I think we definitely need to be thinking about it more. It's a really useful test, but it's maybe a bit premature to be testing everybody that comes through your clinic. So this is a well-designed large study, but as with all complex modelling, it's made a bunch of assumptions, which may or may not be true. And the strength of the findings were lower after adjusting for height. And it also doesn't tell us the magnitude of additional information that testing lung function would give us on top of existing risk prediction models. Although we've just heard that maybe some of them are a bit dodgy. So really, we've no idea whether that kind of strategy of you know doing loads more lung function tests would be cost effective. And the other thing is the cohort was only people of European descent, which really limits its applicability to the patients I see. Um, so I think it's a really useful study. I think it will lead to further mechanistic work. And I do think that the results support interventions which improve lung function, such as treatment for tobacco dependence and support to increase physical activity to prevent cardiovascular disease. Brilliant. So we've gone through loads of fancy statistical modelling and sort of genetic um, studies, but we're basically back to prevention. Yeah, I mean, prevention is always the answer, John. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, LJ. That's, that's fascinating. And we, we always do love a bit of Mendelian stuff on this podcast because it is so interesting, isn't it? Even if it mm -hmm. is quite difficult to get your head around. Um, Gerdof. Wow. 
Okay, so I've got one more, guys, if that's okay. Uh, I think this was great. So I'm sure we all have in our head the causes of anemia, microcytic, macrocytic, and thirdly, have you been to space recently? It turns out that space travel makes you anemic, and it turns out we're not actually sure why. Uh, Theories are related to fluid shifts or hemolysis, not, not quite sure. So this study, also published in Nature Medicine, followed 14 astronauts while they spent six months on the International Space Station. They did serial full blood counts in space and serial carbon monoxide level monitoring. Carbon monoxide is a breakdown product of hemoglobin. Each heme molecule produces one iron, one carbon monoxide and one biliverdin. So actually measuring exhaled carbon monoxide is a direct measure of hemolysis if it goes up. And it's easy to measure in space with air samples, whereas it's not that easy to measure reticular sites on the International Space Station. That's actually really interesting in itself, John. And I've never thought of that as a carbon monoxide increase could be related to hemolysis. So that is a, my first take home point. Please carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so in space, the astronauts, um, so basically they monitored the, the levels of uh, full blood counts, um, carbon monoxide and a few other sort of hematological factors. They did them pre-flight. They did them during the six months at various intervals, and then they did them up to one year post-flight as well. So in space, the astronauts had consistently increased levels of carbon monoxide throughout their mission. And then one year after landing, carbon monoxide was still 30% higher than baseline, and their reticular sites were still up at 16% higher than pre-flight measurements. Their hemoglobins dropped, as you would be expected, during flights, because we know that space travel gives you anemia. However, they did recover back to baseline levels within the year. So what does that tell us? Basically, it looks like that the mechanism that causes anemia during space flights is actually hemolysis. So my practice changing points are, one, always ask anemic people if they've been into space recently, and two, when you do get on that Virgin Galactic flight in a few years' time, be aware of your hemoglobin levels. Nice. I think that's very important, John. I think that's going to be very important for all of our listeners as well. (laughs) Vital. Vital info there. (laughs) Wonderful, <laughs> folks. Thank you. Thank you all so much. You've, um, you, my, our journal Beavers is really fascinating studies and loads for our listeners to take away. But as always, we're going to tell us our, our favorite practice changing points from what we've heard. Katya, wanna, do you want to tell us what your key take home one or two points are? Yeah, I think um, lots of things to reflect on from this episode, actually. But I think my key take home is that in patients with type 2 diabetes, the cardiovascular risk stratification scores are not very helpful. I'm not sure how what we can do differently at this moment in time, but it's, I think, a really important thing not to rely too much on these scores. And that's something I'm definitely going to be like telling my team next week as everyone's calculating scores for everyone all the time, <laughs> just plugging things into their apps. And yeah. LJ, go for it. Um, yeah, I agree. Loads to reflect on this one. I think... Um, I'm really reassured by the study on the really low rates of myopericarditis in COVID vaccination. So that's really helpful and that really helped me have good conversations with patients. Um, and I guess, I mean, I love the eosinophil paper, obviously, but that's just, you know, that's my favourite reading anyway. But I think the other thing to take is I'm probably just going to be more sceptical. <laughs> what even is truth anymore? I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Joe Rogan, tell us. <laughs> okay, maybe not. How about you? My... I, my take home, I think, um, I mean, it's going to be such an influential thing on our practice is the antimicrobial resistant. And every now and again, you like see reports about it or you hear about it. 
and um the sort of five minutes that you spend thinking about it just like you're terrified so i, think, I am terrified yeah, that that paper is 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 really really impressive for its breadth and and paints a very very scary picture that we're kind of sleepwalking into yeah as you say sobering is what you called it at the beginning yeah. i think that's absolutely right well i think we've covered all the studies apart from mine so thanks guys <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> though my favorite study is what I'm gonna learn is I'm not gonna wake up patients, although it probably doesn't make too much difference to delirium. And no, um I think yeah, look the vaccine one, brilliant. I think that's so useful and it's really good use yeah, information for patients and for the anti-vaxxers to be given that reassurance. Um the cinephile one probably overall probably will change my practice and mm. or at least um <clears throat> will yeah, uh, be adaptable to my practice, which I think is fascinating. Um, and actually the sleep weight loss, I, I find really interesting. I, I'm learning so much more about sort of fasting, sleep, lifestyle medicine and the benefits. And actually it's, the benefits are really quite clear and important. So, um, and that could even sort of, you know, change my, pres- change my practice or be something which I, you know, uh, suggest to patients. So brilliant. Barney, are you exploring a high potassium diet at the moment? You have an incredibly large collection of bananas over your right shoulder. <laughs> 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 that always... bananas? Just, just to say, listeners, you know, obviously this is an audio format, but the bowl of bananas is the same size as Barney's head in, <laughs> in the picture and is about two meters behind him. <laughs> <laughs> it is giant. We have a family of monkeys in our Airbnb at the moment Aww. and um, we, you know, eat a lot of bananas. So yeah, anyways. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Lovely, awesome. guys. Thank really you. That was, that was a fantastic episode. Really yeah. great and loads for our listeners to learn. So thank you so much. Hit the Thanks a lot. Thank you. See you next time. You have been listening to Journal Spotting. Information and animations from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. This podcast has been generously supported by St George's Hospital and Health Education England. Special thanks to logo designer Natalia Florman and promotion team Abby and Isabel. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.